What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit in the Temple for all the saints and the ain'ts, also known as Holy Shit Pod, a holy irreverent, irreverently holy conversation about spirituality, culture, and the world. I'm the host who introduces himself first, the Archbishop of the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple, the most holy. No, no, sir. Reverend Brandon T. Maxwell. You are not the most holy. I thought Sam was the most holy. You are the Reverend. No, no. no you said you're no, the most holy no, potentate. No, the last time. But let's get this right. Oh my God. You said you are Reverend Brandon, and now you want to be the most holy? Oh no. I'm the most Reverend. That's okay. You can no. Yes, I am the most Reverend. How? Because the Archbishop is the most Reverend. Whatever. All you people need titles. Just like niggas want to take your title. Boy, I tell you. At least I got one. You ain't got no title. Hey, I don't know who she is. She the, was she a secretary or something? The state of clerk. Whatever the hell that is. We attempt to be egalitarian. We just aren't. Um, I am Katie Ricks, the state of clerk spiritual director in residence and teaching elder of the temple for all the ain'ts because I got relegated to only part of it. Um, White people always want to take up all the space. Oh, my God. I just thought we were doing it together, but it's all right. I'm over at the temple for all the ain'ts. Somebody got to deal with these white folks. I am. Enough. Enough. I'm speaking. I am the the most holy reverend, the presiding prelate, the bishop of praise and worship. I am Pastor Sam. Not Reverend Sam. Pastor Sam. Put some respect on my name. Today, the category is context, queen. In the church announcements, we're talking about the ongoing political turmoil in Afghanistan in the wake of American troops being withdrawn from the country. And during the word of pod, we'll discuss the role of sacred texts, primarily scripture, in our daily lives and how context is also the queen there. And before we get into invitations, we'll respond to another listener question that we couldn't include in last week's 25th church anniversary episode. It's a chock full episode, and we are going to do our best to get it all to you in 59 minutes or less. And with that, let's get into it. You'd be sounding like a white Presbyterian trying to get this over in 59 minutes. Having sex or in church? Church. Sex lasts a whole lot less time than that for Presbyterians. Take off the nine. And just put the five. <laughs> if you're Brandon and he schedules it, it depends on what he schedules it for on <laughs> right, the calendar. Right, exactly. <laughs> good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints. It's so good to see y'all. We have a few church announcements for the good of the congregation on today. Our first announcement is about Healing Jephthah's Daughters, one of our sister podcasts here at Theolab. The entire first season is out now and available to stream on all podcast platforms. HJD podcast host Lisa M. Weaver leads listeners on a journey toward freedom, healing, and wholeness by using the biblical story of Jephthah and his daughter as a lens through which women can process traumas from their parent-child relationships. What I really appreciate about this podcast is the guests that Lisa has in that share their perspective. I think by having all these different voices, we get an even deeper knowledge of what the text is saying, which leads to healing in all areas, but specifically for women and trauma. One of the things that I love about this podcast, I love all the different voices that Katie talked about, but I love Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver. Oh, yes. Her wisdom is unmatched. I love, love hearing her share conversations. And so, you know, I tune in for Lisa. 
And she is certainly someone to tune in for. We've had a few listeners of the Healing Jephthah's Daughters podcast reach out to Lisa to just express gratitude for the content that she's publishing. And I think it's ministry that's happening there, right? Even though it's not in a traditional setting, that's part of the work of Theolab is to make sure that we are providing access to theological resources and conversations to those who might not find them in a congregation or in a seminary proper. So I'm grateful for Healing Jephthah's Daughters and I love all of the creativity that goes into that podcast. So go listen to HJD wherever you stream podcast podcasts with an S, a hard S. Announcement number two. Last week, Blavity News reported that Moderna, one of the producers of the COVID-19 vaccine, is using its COVID-19 research to spearhead clinical trials for an HIV vaccine. The trials are being sponsored by the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative and will include 56 HIV negative individuals of all genders between the ages of 18 and 50. The trial started last Wednesday, August the 19th, and are projected to continue into the spring of 2023. I got a question. Why does it say Sam's response should include commentary about how great this is for black communities? I wanted to go in here and say, well, Brandon's response should include how black gay males really will benefit from this research. I'm going to do that after you say yours. You you know, I think this is really great um, for black communities who are disproportionately impacted by HIV and AIDS. As a matter of fact, I, I think a lot of people within the black community have some thoughts about why the AIDS and HIV epidemic has not seen much more progress than it has. You know, there's these conspiracy theorists who say that black folks were injected with the AIDS virus. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how true that is, but I believe it all. I, listen, I, I do believe that much more could have been done if this was a crisis and an epidemic plaguing different sectors of the population on the same level that it was affecting black folks, we would have made much better progress in this area. So I'm glad to see this from Moderna. Yeah. And I need to dig into this a little bit more, Sam, because part of my challenge with this news is I want to know who the 56 people are. Mm. When HIV was an issue that they thought was primarily affecting our communities, that being black communities, they didn't care about it. But when it started to spread throughout white communities and you had heterosexual white folks, white women getting it because their men were sleeping with other men, that that only happened in the past. Then it became this national health crisis and we had to do something about it. And so many of the resources that have been allocated to HIV prevention and training and education are actually allocated to white audiences. Like I think about the drug PrEP. It exponentially decreased your chances of contracting HIV. But do you know who gets prescribed PrEP more often than not? White gay men. Oftentimes, black gay men don't have access to the education or the resources to get prescribed PrEP that could be something that saves their lives. So I still have questions. I need to dig into this a little bit more. Maybe we can do an entire episode about HIV and how black communities have been impacted by that throughout time. Because I think that's a worthwhile dialogue. Absolutely. We should have had a vaccine sometime earlier in the past 40 years. It's remarkable that this pandemic has sparked some new scientific awareness that will help with the vaccine having lived in that time with people dying, I'm grateful for us to be at this point. All the research, all the medicines has has been focused on either white gay men or white straight people as well. Hopefully this is moving somewhere. I was trying to look up who the who the trial folks are, but I can't find it. They're not talking about it. So maybe they'll talk about it later. 
I do want to mention briefly the fact that we had so much quick progress with producing a vaccine for COVID-19 because of years and years of research concerning HIV and AIDS. Like it was that research that made the speedy development process for the COVID-19 vaccines possible. My partner has worked in HIV and AIDS prevention in the past. And he was already saying within the next five to 10 years, we're probably going to see some sort of vaccine for HIV and AIDS. And so I'm glad that we're taking this clear, explicit turn towards utilizing this research for HIV and AIDS. Let's return back to its original purpose and let's get folks vaccinated. That's interesting. I I had no, I knew that there had been tons of research that had gone into this mRNA uh, vaccine that we're using for COVID, but I had no idea that the research had come from all the research regarding the HIV vaccine. That is something that I learned. So yeah, we got to do a whole episode about that. Yeah, we do. Because I assume that the vast majority of listeners and the general public are not aware of that correlation. Mm -mm. We celebrate that this is happening. Relatedly, I do want to acknowledge there is an organization called Gilead. Gilead has this thing called the Compass Initiative. And I'm so excited to announce that Theolab Media has been awarded a grant by the Gilead Compass Initiative via Wake Forest University School of Divinity, which is functioning as the faith coordinating center for this initiative. So with this grant, we're going to produce a couple of additional podcasts for you that do focus on Black folks, gay folks, HIV, AIDS, and health education. All of that is going to come out next year. We're targeting the beginning of 2022 for those podcasts. So stay tuned for more information. For today, we just want to celebrate the fact that we have this grant. For our last announcement, we're going to tarry a little bit longer here because this merits a lot of conversation and it'll be a nice setup for our Word of Pod segment. After nearly two decades of war, the United States is withdrawing all United States military personnel from Afghanistan and the former Taliban government is rapidly recapturing control of the country. The withdrawal of U.S. troops started on May the 1st, 2021, and has only really accelerated since its beginning. But let's not be too quick to jump to where we are now. I think it's important to rewind and talk about the history, which, Katie, I think you have. So how and when did the war in Afghanistan start? Yeah, so the Taliban, first of all, was governing Afghanistan back in 2001 with a very strict form of government that they named an Islamic state. Among other things, the connection with the rest of the world was shut down. Punishments for crimes included beheadings and amputations, and women were barred from leaving their homes and were threatened with death for doing so. The Taliban were also believed to be harboring terrorist groups in Afghanistan, and Hmm. that is the reason the United States invaded there. One of these groups, Al-Qaeda, was believed by many to have orchestrated the 9-11 attacks. And so the U.S. began the invasion by bombing Al-Qaeda, well, what they thought were Al-Qaeda encampments in October of 2001 and soon after toppled the Taliban government. So, Katie, you said believed to be. It was believed to be the Taliban government that aided and abetted al-Qaeda in attacking the United States on September the 11th. Did I hear that, Will? Yes, I used believed to be. I have all kinds of opinions that I actually haven't wrestled with in my new state of the world, but I think, like, I'm suspicious of... I'm suspicious of the media, of how the military talks about what they do. Um, I mean, I remember thinking back then, like, these are terrorist groups. I don't actually think they're as organized as The media portrays. Right, exactly. (laughs) And so I'm not sure that they called themselves Al-Qaeda before everything went on. Now, maybe they did. I don't have access to all the intelligence and stuff, obviously, but- I remember being suspicious of just how organized 
uh, they were. So I don't want to question how organized they are because I think organization can look different depending on the context that you're in. But what I will acknowledge and agree with you on is the fact that the United States government is quick to call things they don't like terrorist organizations. They tried to label Black Lives Matter as a terrorist organization at multiple junctures. But the reason that I was asking about the belief to be is because many will also say that really the issue was Saudi Arabia. But somehow we ended up in a war in Afghanistan, even though it was Saudi Arabia that seemed to be the safe harbor for what the United States government identified as al-Qaeda. Well, exactly, exactly. And I think they went to Afghanistan because Osama bin Laden had been actually somebody who had been fighting the Taliban uh, when the Soviet Union was there and actually was armed by the United States. Like, they had our weapons because we wanted them to defeat the Soviet Union. So we thought he was in charge. We knew he was in Afghanistan. So that's why they went. But yes, uh, Saudi Arabia certainly is home to terrorists. I don't know if Al-Qaeda is one of them. I mean, I just don't, I don't know. So fast forward a little bit and tell me how we get to the place of withdrawing and whether or not this withdrawal can be called abrupt after nearly 20 years of occupancy. Right. I think, first of all, to know what they've been doing for the past 20 years, uh, the U.S. has gone in trying to do nation building, creating a democracy, and train Afghan security forces to protect their country. You were talking about context earlier. This involved a lot of stops and starts because we didn't take into account the Afghan culture or how these disparate groups came together to form a country. That's important to know because early in 2020, the Secretary of State under the previous president met with Taliban and Afghan Afghan officials to broker a deal for the departure of U.S. and NATO troops within 14 months. There was a lot of internal dynamics between the Taliban and the Afghan government up in the air. But when President Biden took over, he stuck with that plan and removed virtually all U.S. troops by July 1st. So whether or not that is abrupt is a debate that I'm not sure anybody can answer. What's problematic and what is tragic is that they didn't have a plan or that the United States didn't have a plan for how to protect all of the people who served alongside them, who assisted them, translators, drivers, people who worked on the military bases. And that's what you see now. You see people hanging on planes as they're taking off from the airport in Kabul. And so I kind of tend to agree with this person that I heard who said, it doesn't matter if we left today or in 10 years or in 20 more. That was Joe Biden. Oh, wow. That was was Biden. That was me too. I I actually um, read (laughs) Joe Biden's quote yesterday. And he said, if we pulled out five years ago, Yep. Or if we pulled out 15 years from now, the same thing that happened yep. would, would likely have still happened. And I made the same comment in like a, in a, in a group uh, a few days ago that says, if, this, if we left 20 years from now, the same thing would have happened. Correct. That's exactly right. Wow. I didn't remember it was Biden. Well, it was Sam first. Wait. It was me first. Biden said it after me. Uh, I emailed him and said- Sam was quoting. Say this. No, actually, I wasn't quoting him. I said it before he did. But anyway. You did. So n- now Sam's bugged. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Shit. But, th- but the reality is perhaps we would have had a plan to deal with the humanity humanitarian crisis, right? My father always says prior planning in order to be effective must be done in advance. My eighth grade teacher used to say, Dr. Tice used to always tell us, you have to have a P-L-A-E. My college advisor used to always say, we don't plan to fail. We fail to plan. Mm -hmm. That's the the tragic part about this situation that there wasn't a plan to deal with the humanitarian uh, aspect of it. But the thing for me is, it's not only about the plan. It's about the goal. America lacked a goal when it initially engaged in combat in Afghanistan. We went in for retaliatory reasons. 
some group of people that was probably a little bit less mainstream than American politics and media wanted us to believe was blamed for flying two planes into the World Trade Center and then shortly thereafter, the Pentagon. And we needed someone to blame. George Bush wanted to look like America had responded. We ain't no punks. That's that hyper-masculinity. We ain't no punks. You ain't gonna come in and fly no planes into what we doing without a consequence. So then we went to retaliate against folks. And that was the goal. But we didn't want to say that. So what we started to do is talk about nation building. We're going to try to create a democracy. Look at the condition of women and girls. Even though we don't give a shit about women and girls in American context, look at what's happening with these women and girls in Afghanistan. We must go here and build a nation. So the goal morphed to become one that sounded holier, more sacred, more just, more moral than what the initial task was, which was to retaliate against these folks that had attacked our country. So how can you have a plan for a project you didn't intend? I'm stuck on something that you said, or maybe it's the the tone in which you said it, which may imply something. So this idea that the response to September 11 was a hyper-masculinist response, what should have been the response? I'm not, and I'm not saying that war should have been the response, but if the hyper-masculine response, or as we are categorizing it, was the res- wrong response after the planes were flown into the towers, what should have been the response? You opened in the can of worms that I don't know if we intended today, but I think there were options. And this is why they would never elect me to be the president. If I were sitting in that seat after 9-11 happened as a black man in America, I would bring all of my ancestors with me in that decision-making process. And so I would be asking questions about why would people want to bomb us? Do we believe in a world where our only option is to engage in an arms race, to create fear, to increase our military personnel staffing? I would have to have a serious conversation with America from the Oval Office to outline not only what was going to happen if we bombed folks in a retaliatory fashion, but also the 20 years it was going to take, at least 20 years it was going to take for us to grapple with the implications of our decision. And I, as the president, wouldn't make the call to drop bombs on Afghanistan. So I think that was the biggest thing. We needed more detail. What George Bush and his staff did, they sought somebody to blame. They amplified this seemingly marginal terrorist organization. So they had an excuse to bomb a country who had nothing to do with the initial actions. And I think hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I think it's easier for you to have that response in hindsight. And as we talk about like how we study scripture, this kind of comes into that because when you go back historically and you look at uh, what happened after September the 11th, it wasn't just George Bush and his administration that was overwhelmingly in support of finding a boogeyman to bomb, finding someone to go to war with. Both houses of Congress overwhelmingly supported the, the war declarations. We were thirsty for retribution and revenge. And even if you were the president and you brought all of your ancestors to it, you would have been in the minority and may, may you definitely would have been a one-term president if you didn't respond after that type of attack. I would have been Jimmy Carter. You would have been Jimmy Carter. This is this is why Jimmy was not reelected. Because he didn't and he and he prides himself on saying we didn't fire one bullet during my administration. And I would pride myself on that shit too. All four years of it. Right. And I and I agree and I, I'm not saying that I disagree with you. Jimmy Carter still is in some ways regarded as like the most ineffective and worst president in American history among some circles. You know what I'm saying? And they might call me that. And, and they probably would call you that. But I do know. But I didn't, I didn't fire one bullet. I didn't drop one bomb. You've never been president. And they but, wouldn't uh, elect me. 
they wouldn't elect you. You're right. But but I just wanted to point out that at that particular time in history, we talk about Bush and how he went to war, but it wasn't just Bush. It's, it's like the it's like the crime bill, you know, that Clinton passed. Everybody was for it. Like, like let's be real. Katie pointed that out, right? Ronald Reagan was giving these folks weapons prior to George Bush. Mm-hmm. The whole Democrat-Republican thing, mm-hmm. who needs to be held accountable, Trump or uh, Biden, that's bullshit. That's a red herring. The United States as a system needed someone to blame, needed a villain. Yes, and that and the reason why there was so much support for it is that we in the United States, as a country, the only other time that we had been attacked was at Pearl Harbor. And that is what finally shocked us out of ignoring that World War II was going on. This is the only the second time in history of the United States where this happened. And so all of a sudden, it, it shook the fear of a country, the kind of fear that other countries are dealing with all the time. I mean, there's kids walking home with bombs being dropped on them and gunfire shot all the time, but that's what sparked the desire to go after them. Why we ended up staying there is beyond my scope of knowledge and and is what you're actually talking about in terms of having a plan, Brandon. But the, the other challenge is the questions you are asking are ones that need to be asked, but they are hundreds of years old. You're asking questions that get at the foundation of the country that was developed that is a challenge. The point you just made about Pearl Harbor being the first time this had ever happened on our soil, that's a white portrayal of history from my vantage point. Nat Turner led a rebellion. The notion that we were all one country and this has never happened on our soil is complete and total bullshit and it erases black people who've been leading this work of revolution for centuries out of necessity. That's helpful because one of the things that I'm wrestling with is like my knowledge today versus how I viewed the world 20 years ago. And so, and I think that's helpful. What you said was exactly right. I think that's the wrestling when something has, I mean, that's what I find after 20 years, this is one of those moments where I see the differences in how I see things. I struggle with my military background, but what I thought about the military and which I haven't let go of is that my father and my father's father and my father's father's father and my brother truly believe that they're going to protect something, to create a peace. But my father was in the military at a time where he didn't go to Vietnam. So he was just involved in the Cold War. I don't know what I'm saying. I just, yeah, this is the level of complexity that exists inside of me because I I truly know that um, what my family, well, I mean, I can speak for my father and my brother, what they are doing, what they have done, they view it differently than... And I, th- I think they have been filled with integrity. I think other people would say that too. And so I, I get that, but it's, it's just complicated. It is highly complicated. And I think that's the reason for this conversation today. I, what I don't want you to hear, and I think we have enough of a rapport so that this is clear to you, but I want it to be clear to listeners who might have served in the military and or listeners whose family members serve in the military. I'm not here to criticize your loved ones. I'm not here to say that your loved ones are horrible people. I actually believe this is a broader conversation. And I mean, I know what it means to be a black person in a predominantly white institution and to make choices and to tell myself stories, to survive and to perform my task. If my ultimate task is to make sure that black people aren't harmed, I got to adopt some strategies that you might not understand or agree with. I also am here to say 
at the end of the day, to wrap this part of the conversation up and turn to our uh, discussion about scripture, to your point, Katie, we didn't have a plan. To my point, we didn't have a goal. And I think that the biggest thing is we didn't have an understanding of the context. And that's why the category today is context queens, because we have to understand context enough to outline a plan with specificity. And because we didn't know enough about Afghanistan to, I mean, one, let's talk about whether or not the goal, let, let, let's just rewrite history and suggest that the goal always was to build a democratic country, to build a nation. Let's say that was the goal, even though that's not the case. If that was the goal that we had to understand the soil into which we were planting and to understand whether or not democ- democracy was desired in this context and whether or not it could flourish there. Without that awareness and understanding, we can't initiate a project or a plan. And not just whether it was desired, but what brand of democracy was desired? Why does America think that they are the arbiters of democracy and morality? Correct. That people have a right to self-determine. Yes. Whether whether it's a, a hybrid version of democracy, their own creative version of democracy, that's why we were there for 20 years and would have been there for another 120. Correct. Because we were trying to instill our brand of democracy on people who weren't ready to receive it. Who had no desire to receive it. Who had no desire. And the people who are on the ground, whether they're, um, whatever part of the military they are, whatever part of the contracting world they are, they are still used, like the decisions about what they do is still done by the people in Washington who have never stepped onto a, onto the, a battlefield or, or studied anything. So, um, so they did the same things over and over and over and over and over again, instead of digging into the context because the politicians needed them to come up with a different answer. Than what they could. And that's real, Katie. I mean, but honestly, though, Brandon, it should infuriate us how many tax dollars that we have spent sustaining this experiment in Afghanistan. Experiments, honey. Trying to force feed Americans brand of democracy to Afghan people. And even just broadening our own social programs is called communist. And we can't even make sure everyone has health care. And we can't even buy. How many trillions of dollars have we spent fighting this war? We should be infuriated that we can't even have a conversation about everybody in this own country having access to food, health care, all of these things. But we can spend 20 years spending t- all of their tax dollars force feeding our brand of democracy onto somebody and, and the, the, all of their major cities fall within like a week after we leave. I mean, I wouldn't even call it socialism. It's military rule. So we can fund experiments of socialism under the guise of forced democracy in other countries, but we can't feed the people of color here because, you know, uh, you know, because pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Bullshit. So the key for me is we cannot force democracy on a country at gunpoint. The second that you got to have guns, large guns, assault weapons to maintain democracy, that's something drastically different than anything that we call democracy in the American context. Maybe not. I mean, I think there's some nuance there, but at least we don't see people walking around here with AK-47s. We know that it could happen. And maybe that's enough to keep us all in our place. But that's not democracy. You don't see, uh, do you not live in Georgia? (laughs) I live in Atlanta. We got a blue bubble. Uh. (laughs) So that wraps our church announcement segment for the day a little bit longer, but it is deeply related to our conversation about scripture and interpretation. 
So we invite you to govern yourselves accordingly to all these announcements. Send an email to holyshitatfeelatmedia.com to share your thoughts on what we've discussed today or head on over to feelatmedia.com to add your own two cents to the conversation using the purple hexagon in the bottom of the screen on our homepage. All right, people of pop, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss the role and function of scripture and sacred texts in our daily lives. And we're also going to dig deeper into why the category today is context queens. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks be to pod. Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver, the host of Feeling Jephthah's Daughters a podcast for all women and all girls who live with the trauma from their relationships with their fathers. Join me for conversations with friends, colleagues, biblical scholars, and mental health practitioners who will accompany us on the journey. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is available on all platforms. Subscribe via your favorite podcast app today. And as always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. Welcome back, people of Pod. Last week, we celebrated our 25th episode, also known as the 25th Church Anniversary Celebration. We received wonderful questions from all of you. We were able to include four of those in last week's episode. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen. It's a hoot. Sam said that he does not speak dog and God don't speak English. (laughs) Each question was so generative. And I think Sam also had a new dose of his ADHD meds, so he was real focused. So we couldn't include everything in one episode. So what we're going to do instead of having a part two of the 25th church anniversary celebration is utilize a few of the questions we received as launch pads for our next few word of pods unless something more interesting comes up and then we'll just do it in a later Word of Pod. So today's Word of Pod is inspired by Natasha Sanders out of Kerrville, Texas. Here's Natasha's question and our response to the question, which has resulted in today's conversation about scripture. Hello, this is Natasha Sanders, and I am bringing my question all the way from Kerrville, Texas today. I'm wondering, whenever you're preparing to preach a sermon, what method do you use or do you use what you would call a method? That's one question. And then I also am wondering, do you... Read the Bible because you're preparing for a sermon or do you engage in some type of regular reading of the Bible? Thank you so much for offering this podcast. I enjoy listening and I hope that you all are well today. Bye. You know, I'm going to be honest with you, Natasha. I'm still on a sabbatical from my four years of seminary four years ago. Uh, And I felt like I read enough Bible for a decade. So catch me in six years and then I might do some more regular reading, but I was done. After seminary, I said, mm-mm, mm-mm. I, ain't, I have read a book since. I'm done with that. Bullshit. Oh, what was the other question? So I need to read the Bible more. Well, what I, what I really feel like I, I would like to read more is the Psalms. And I think I would like to be able to internalize that hope or even that lament. So that is something I would like to do. The second part of it, and actually I encourage people not to use this word, but I feel like I should do that in terms of the um, ordination that I have. But yes, I would say to someone else that that is a ridiculous statement. So I will both say it and articulated as ridiculous. This is the deal. I know I'm the resident heretic. Y'all ain't reading the Bible. Ain't nobody reading the dead gum Bible. (laughs) None of y'all are reading it. I I ain't never read the Bible. 
No, I'm being serious. When they used to be, when they used to be like, you got to read your Bible and pray every day. I wasn't doing that. You was reading that Bible when you was at Lake Providence. I was not. She was reading that Bible. I was not. No, I was. I I ain't gonna lie to you. I was reading my Bible all the way up through seminary. Some folks do read their Bible, and I have never understood the people who sit there and read the Bible and go to bed, or read the Bible and have a meal, or read the Bible and like, what are you doing? Why? They're meditating on the word of God. Well, go read Romy. I encounter God. I mean, people read the Bible to encounter God, correct? I mean, that's one way to read the Bible. And for me, um, perhaps this is what you are saying, Brandon, there are different ways to encounter God. For me, that might be a walk out in the woods. It might be centering prayer. It might be going for a swim. It might be working on the yard. There are all kinds of ways that I encounter God and the Bible at this point in my journey is not one of them. Y'all heretics. Honestly, I don't think people are trying to encounter God. I think they're reading their Bible because pastors for years and centuries and churches for centuries have said you need to read your Bible. The only way that they can keep the Bible at the center of our common life is to make people think they have to read it to go to heaven, to be safe, to be spiritual, or to find God. What they are doing is being indoctrinated when they read scripture. If you go to scripture and you read some shit that happened in the before Christ times, before the common era times, and you're trying to figure out what that has to say about how you should be living today, it's likely not a one-to-one correlation. And we haven't equipped people to actually read scripture. Natasha, you done opened up a damn can of worms. We're going to do a whole episode about reading scripture. That's what's going to happen next week. I've been told y'all we needed to do that. Mm. So Let me, I ain't done. Damn, uh, do it again. We need to do a whole episode about reading scripture. Mm. No, interrupt me again. Interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, y'all, this is just me and Brandon's relationship. He has really become a brother from another mother for me. I love this guy. I'll stop being mushy. Shut up and move on. Okay. Uh, Brandon, to your point, like I agree with you 100%. Most people don't know what to do with problematic texts within scripture. They don't know what to do with babies' heads being dashed against the rock. So there's one scripture where like on the ordination of the Levites, they went through and killed everybody, women, men, and children, everybody. And it was like, what do you do with that scripture? People don't know what to do with the violence that's present in scripture. And they and, and at the same time, they they talk about they love a, a worship a loving God and all of these things. Or they, or they look at you funny like, what violence is scripture? Scripture doesn't contradict itself. And I'm like, you ain't reading. First, we have to start with what lens do we read scripture through? For me, I'm reading through a particular lens. It's almost every sermon that I preach, every time I go to, to, the, to, to the Bible, I'm, I'm looking for liberation. I'm looking for justice. I'm looking for freedom um, in the text. Now, you know, for me, it's, I'm like you, Brandon. I don't care about them genealogies and some of this other stuff. And I can see when Paul is uh, digging really deep into context. And we'll talk about this when we talk about scripture. I can see when you have people who are in a particular context who are kind of being ruled by a, another class of people. And Paul writes and gives them certain advice and says, live life this way or don't respond like this or do this. Then I understand, shit, Paul is saying that to keep the peace or to, or to make sure that the people don't end up in a bad situation and he says, you know, if you owe people debts, then just keep your head down. Don't cause any problem. It's the type of advice we might give to people if we was writing a letter to somebody in a hostile situation saying, hey, you just need to, you just need to, you just need to mind your business, do your work and don't cause no trouble. But that don't mean I agree with Paul. And so when Paul said, slave, obey your masters, I said that was the worst damn advice that you could have gave. Worst damn advice. You know, like like you, some people will say it's in the Bible, it's scripture, slaves. Are, no, no, no. 
tear some shit up. Tear it all up. Because I believe that the actions of Christ are actually at odds with some of the advice that other people give in other places of the biblical text. And I actually believe that Christ actually would probably give different advice if Christ were advising those same people. And so I don't necessarily agree just because it's in the Bible. And that that's going to make me a heretic <laughs> from a lot of people. But I understand the context. I understand the background. I know pa- Paul is responding to letters or he's writing to a specific congregation. And so I read some stuff and say, what the hell was Paul? Somebody else should have wrote this because Paul ain't know what the hell he was doing. But the context matters, right? The context matters. And Harsh, you open up a can of worms and you've prompted another episode So we're going to talk about this more in a future episode. Mm -hmm. So now that we're done with that conversation, Sam, you very clearly said that you wanted to have a conversation about scripture and that you've been saying it for a while. I wasn't listening clearly. Shocking. But why did you feel and have you felt that we need to have a discussion about scripture? Katie, I would ask you, but you've already made it very clear that the Presbyterians (laughs) don't believe in the word of God. So Sam. (laughs) Right. And we're trying to descend to whiteness. And since white people think they wrote scripture, <laughs> we're not going to ask Katie. They do. Uh, <laughs> Except that King James did. Uh, <laughs> but Well, the, the truth, Brandon, is that for so many people, especially Christians, scripture is sort of a foundation that guides many important things in our lives. For some people, it's the impetus for making moral decisions. For some, it influences our social behavior. And whether we want to accept it or not, especially here in our part of the United States, it can influence and impact our laws. So we have to understand scripture's context and structure and composition. Are you suggesting we have a theocracy here in America? <laughs> yep. One of my one of my the- one of my theological heroes, James Cone. James Cone. God rest his soul. Says one thing that scripture does not do. Scripture does not self-interpret. Ah? We make an interpretive decision when we read scripture. Every time. So it's important to try and understand scripture as much as possible before we make that decision because it will have an enormous effect on the lives of so many people. You've got to know yourself too, right? Because you need to know what the interpretive decision that you're making is. Yeah, I think that's important, Katie. So Katie, do you read scripture? (laughs) I do read scripture. I think if I'm preparing for a sermon, though, there are two things that I do. I use a practice called Lectio Divina. You read it and listen to it three times and, and reflect on different things throughout it. When I'm working on a sermon, I'm holding in my head kind of who it is that I'm speaking with, if there's a baptism or if there's Eucharist or if there's something going on in the world, all of that's kind of swirling around as I'm listening for God to speak. I appreciate doing that in community best um, because I think that I, I come to understand Scripture better when I'm listening with other people. The other thing I like to do, and it contributes to the Lexio. Lectio Divina is I write out the text um, and try to find the patterns and rhythms and then look up Greek or Hebrew of some of the words that show up a lot. Um, And I think that opens up kind of the complexity of what's being talked about as well. So for me, no one ever taught me how to actually critically read scripture. People just said, you're supposed to go to scripture, read it and see what the Lord says. And it was always this spirited, pray, pray for the Holy Ghost, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. That's what they said in 2021. It sounds foolish, but people still doing (laughs) it. That sounds so foolish now. So if that's still your testimony, (laughs) God bless your business, but that ain't mine. So people go to scripture and they just sit there and they act like if I just go here without any additional information and I start reading, 
then somehow, some way, God is going to reveal to me what I need to know. God going to reveal it. Now, it doesn't matter if what God reveals to me is drastically inconsistent with what's actually happening in the text. That's what God revealed to me. Yeah. That's the way that it is. And so it took me getting to undergrad to start to understand that there are four primary ways in which we can read and or criticize scripture. And those four ways are textual criticism, source criticism, form criticism, and literary criticism. Why are y'all saying, oh Lord and oh God? Because nobody gives a shit about that in the world. Don't make this too heady. Yeah. Like what? Tell me why that's important. I'm linking it to the Afghanistan conversation. Okay. I mean, even the names, is there a way that you can identify them. This is the problem with America. Y'all reacting before you've even heard anything. It's the names itself. You don't know what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, and you're already reacting. You're right. We're hearing it as other people use it. No, no, no. <laughs> you dumbass. Shut up. You're talking to me or Katie because I don't know who you... you. <laughs> I don't know who you think you're talking to, but if a damn show ain't me. I, 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 think, I think people use this stuff like... I, I have learned this stuff in seminary. That was 20 years ago. I don't even think about the specifics anymore, and that's fine. But what I do know in seminary is that Walter Brueggemann, who writes all the shit about the Old Testament, never let us use commentaries for our exegesis papers because he wanted us to figure that stuff out on our own. Now, I do that, and then I go to commentaries that may use any of these areas of biblical criticism in order to go, oh God, I was completely wrong. Look how Brandon looking at you. So push pause, because y'all are being reactive. So (laughs) there are four categories of criticism. Now, I'm not here to suggest that these categories are things that you need to deploy when you're reading scripture, but what it can do is actually help you understand what you're reading, as opposed to going in and just pleading for the Holy Ghost to explain to you what's happening in the Bible. So there are these four methods of criticism in academic context. We're not going to be too heady in academics today, but I want to at least give you the names of these methodologies in case you're the type of person who likes to go and Google these things and read them for yourself after podcasts conclude. So the first one is called textual criticism. The second is source. Third is form. And the fourth is literary All of those are forms or methods of criticizing the biblical text that I would encourage you to research if you're interested in still engaging scripture. So now that we've got your reactivity out of the way and we've introduced those concepts, let's talk about them in more detail and not in an academic fashion. Sam, since we went to the same seminary, I assume you learned about these methods of biblical criticism as well. Do you have a favorite? Well, yeah, I think I struggled at first. Like, in the we we kind of we kind of talked about not being too heady with this because I think in seminary it took a minute for me to even like grasp all of this stuff. Like, what is this criticism? What the hell are they talking about? But after really understanding it, I had an appreciation for form criticism, which kind of analyzes the biblical text of the scripture to determine what the original use of that scripture was within the context of that ancient community. So, for example, form criticism, it would establish that, let's say, the the parables in the Gospels, that they generally deal with one major point. And so they should not be interpreted as though every detail in the story has a symbolic meaning. Yes. And when I started to understand form criticism, I started to read scripture through that lens. And so many things made sense. And you know how to put things in their proper context. And so form criticism might also establish that let the parables tell us something about the situation in the church at the time of the gospels, at the time that they were composed. So then you read scripture through a different lens and you say, ah, Jesus wasn't necessarily 
clearly speaking to First Presbyterian Baptist Church in 2021. This is dealing with a specific issue that's going on in a specific community at that specific time. And you're able to put it in context. See how easy this is when you don't react? No, 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 no. So I was just about to tell you, like, my criticism was about the way you were about to frame it. And I think the way you went back and did that was was really good. So that's, mm, yeah. That's also my favorite a type of biblical criticism because it helped me to start to trouble the waters of scripture. So now it's not necessarily that the Holy Spirit can't speak to me. For those of you who might think we're sacrilegious, if you want to deploy both the Holy Spirit and this biblical criticism in your reading of scripture, I think that it will make you a more faithful reader of scripture. If I'm going to the gospels, not only are the gospels themselves a form, but within the gospels, to Sam's point, there are these many forms of text. Mm -hmm. There are parables that Jesus assumedly spoke. There are also times where Jesus is kind of calling back to hymns and songs that people in that day and age would know. And so to know exactly what that song is and who he was trying to appeal to changes how you might read the scripture. To know that the Psalms, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes are kind of poetry. Mm -hmm. To know that this is what the intention of that particular book is, the form of that book, Mm -hmm. shapes how I read it. That was transformative for me. But you know, some people will say all scripture is meant to be taken literally. But if you read scripture through form criticism, you understand that that can't be the case, that some parts of scripture were intended to be satire. It wasn't intended to be taken literally at all. But then there are some parts of scripture like genealogies. Brandon, we talked in the last episode about so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. That is a historical record that is being orally spoken in history. And that is something that we can take literally. So form criticism helps you understand those different parts of scripture. And I still wouldn't take it literally. I would still take it figure. I mean, I would I would say that's an actual factual historical account, but because nine times out of 10, it was told through the lens of who the man was in the family. Didn't none of them men beget nobody. <laughs> so that wasn't literal. <laughs> Even that was not literal, right? Correct. Katie, you hate all this shit, but did you have a favorite sort of form of criticism when you were in seminary? You know, I'm trying to look up um, rhetorical criticism because that that's what Brueggemann does and really grounded what I did. But honestly, I can't remember what it was. I, th- I will tell you what my initial reaction is. And, and then I wonder if it's the, um, you all approach this by saying um, people just, they just want to hear the Holy Spirit. Whereas I come from a tradition, but where no one is seeking the Holy Spirit, they spend all their time talking about each of these biblical criticisms and never actually allow God into the process. So my reaction at first was that. And so then as I was listening to you all, I can appreciate that because we had this conversation we were talking about like anti-intellectualism or something like that. I mean, we approach it from different angles. And I think for me, if I'm sitting in my standard mainline Presbyterian church and someone starts talking about historical, critical, blah, blah, blah. I have tuned out. And so that's because my people don't look for the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I do the things that you're talking about. And I mean, I think I recall from Brueggemann talking about rhetorical criticism is like you deal with the text that's right in front of you, right? I mean, you have these other things. It's not like you can just use one, but what is it right in front of you dealing with the text that's in front of you using these other things, but also allow space for the spirit. All of that is important to how I read 
scripture. Okay, do you actually do know about some of these methods? How intriguing. I apologize for going off on your all your little criticism ways, but... Wow, this is an amazing conversation. Just think about what's possible when we're aware of our triggers and don't <laughs> act. Uh, you said something in your rant about, you know, not looking for God in the process. And for me, approaching scripture through these different forms of criticism attempts to locate God in the original context of these texts. And I think you have to also do that. And I think the problem with how we read scripture today is we only locate God or we only look for the Holy Spirit to tell us how this text applies or if this text applies to our present current situation. And I think that there's some value in locating God in the original intent, in the original context of this scripture and understanding what what it meant for those communities as well. Right. And Katie, you talked about rhetorical criticism, and this is my understanding of it. It may not be exactly what Brueggemann taught you, and I will trust me over Brueggemann. (laughs) Um, And I think you actually might in real life. But with rhetorical criticism, I don't think that it actually stands on its own. Rhetorical criticism to me relies on these other methodologies to substantiate itself because rhetorical criticism is making a claim. And this is why I like it. It's attempting to say the Bible has an agenda. Genesis has an agenda. Exodus has an agenda. Exodus chapter 20 has an agenda. How is this text functioning rhetorically? What is it trying to persuade you to do? How is it trying to persuade you to live as a human, as a person of faith? Just because that's the text's agenda doesn't mean it has to be mine. I can come to the text and know that it has this agenda and that can have an impact on my life. Maybe this text's agenda is to justify the violent actions of the children of Israel when they were going in and becoming oppressors. I don't have to buy into that. Right. Because if I buy into that logic and my criticism and my reading of scripture that I'm justified in this violent act that could lead me to support George Bush, Ronald Reagan, Joe Biden. Donald Trump, Barack Obama, when they deploy troops to Afghanistan or send military aid to these other countries or stockpile weapons in these other countries for the sake of advancing democracy. Right. Which is why you need to know your own biases when you get into it. As you were talking, I was reminded of the base communities in Latin America where they were, where these folks um, would get together. Many times women would get together and read scripture together and hear it. And I think that's what I'm most formed by. Maybe this is why I have problems with preaching too, but like I want to know how other people hear the text. So some of the time that's coming from commentaries, right? But the most holy times that I experience it is when I'm in a community with a diverse group of people, whatever that means, to hear the spirit differently. Again, there's all the things that you're talking about, but my pro- all of that is within how I think about it. But the most significant piece of it to me is is listening to the people in the community. So we may be not saying different things. It's may, Maybe it's just about where we start. And we may be saying different things, right? We don't have to appeal to commonality all the time. It's okay to be different. And I think in this instance, what I would highlight as a difference is, it sounds like your context schooled you in all these modes of biblical criticism, even if it was implicit, but didn't school you in the Holy Ghost. Our context schooled us in the Holy Ghost, but didn't necessarily school us in these forms of biblical criticism. So what I'm just trying to highlight is there may be a function for both in our lives if we make space for them and figure out how our reading of scripture becomes even stronger, if not only do we rely on these tools and these methods, but also on the tool my grandmama gave me. Right, right, right. right. And that's what I was saying. Like, this is what I had to learn 
this is what you needed to learn. And those were different journeys because I still am trying to teach white folks the Holy Ghost. Black folks done mastered these criticisms because we went to cemetery. I mean, seminary. (laughs) (laughs) So to bring this full circle to the beginning of our conversation, we spent a lot of time in um, our conversation about Afghanistan. And I think these conversations are very clearly connected because with scripture, the point that I'm trying to drive home is that context is queen. You have to know the context of what you're reading before you can actually glean anything from it. And in the same way that the United States acts on other countries, today we talked about Afghanistan and its actions on Afghanistan. They acted on Afghanistan with a fake goal of building a nation when they really wanted to retaliate without understanding the context. Christians every single day go to scripture with the fake goal of advancing the kingdom of God. And that's their language, not mine. But what they're really going to do is retaliate against that person who was courageous enough to say, I'm here and I'm queer. I'm going to the text to retaliate against that person and use scripture as the equivalent of a bomb being dropped on Afghanistan. Hmm. And I don't know the context of that person's life. Come on. He preaching, ain't he, Katie? Katie caught the Katie and caught the Holy Ghost. Yeah, shout out to Bullshot. Well, yes, and that's I mean, and this is what Samuel was talking about earlier, right? Like it's it's understanding the context of the text. It's understanding the context of Afghanistan. It's understanding the context of the desire to retaliate. It's under like what are your own contexts that create the situation or how you engage with it? Because if I want to retaliate against someone, then I have to be aware of that's what's going on and step back and go, wait, is this just me? Or are we talking about a bunch of other people? So it's the context of the setting. It's the context of the Bible. It's also the context of the people who are listening. And that's exactly why when you have Latina women in base communities reading the text, they're hearing it differently. You're talking about gay people reading the text. Mm. That's why white theologians bring in diverse theologians because it's so... She used air quotes here. Y'all couldn't see them. Diverse was in the air quotes. <laughs> because it's so shocking to have someone say, I'm a womanist scholar. I'm a queer scholar. I'm a Latinx scholar. This is who I am and I'm going to bring myself into it. It's shocking to white systematic theology. Because y'all been fooling yourselves into thinking that y'all ain't got no interior context. I just told you they think they wrote it. They think their context is the only context. It's the preeminent context. It's the they they think they control scripture. Exactly. So white folks are to scripture what you are to this podcast. And I would <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When I got to seminary, I had a professor break down all this criticism into three categories. The world within the text, the world behind the text, and the world in front of the text. So if you're looking at the world within the text, that's what's actually happening in the story. What's Moses doing? What's Miriam doing? What the children of Israel doing? What's Jesus doing? There is a world within the text that may or may not be reflective of the world behind the text. They didn't sit there writing down what Jesus was doing at the exact moment that it was happening. It was years decades, centuries after Jesus was on the earth supposedly doing these things before folks wrote it down. And when they wrote it down... From the oral history. Yes. Come on. That gets into some source criticism. Correct. How do we get this story? Is it an oral story passed down? And you already know. 
Yeah, you ever done that exercise where uh, one one person at the front of the classroom turn around and tell the telephone thing, mm-hmm. and by the time it gets to the back of the classroom, the story is totally different, completely different. And but yeah. you want to tell yeah. me that scripture is inerrant? What? Uh, even though it was only transcribed years after it was orally spoken in the people who was there to hear it. Yes. Come on, wasn't even around when it was transcribed. You want me to believe that people can't even figure out the context of the country that they bombing, but they was going to take the time to figure out how to properly translate Greek to English? This is what I thought you were going to say when you were going to talk about your encounter with scripture, because I think that's more understandable to people. To uh, like, So it's named different things, right? So you started doing this. Well, this is named different things, but I think, again, this comes from my own engagement with seminary and whiteness church and whiteness <laughs> is that we don't need to speak theology language but what you just said describes all of it like to me that i've heard you talk about that before probably since i first knew you that to me is the best way to think about scripture or it is a very good way to think about scripture so and for me it's still both and right i want to give you the baby food so i want to talk about the world within behind and in front of the text i didn't even get to the world in front of the text because the other thing this professor said is not only do these first two worlds exist we also have a world in which we live yeah scripture didn't even have what we are living in as a possibility at the time that it was compiled if they knew that the internet was coming they may have waited a little bit longer before they started writing all this stuff down on these scrolls and trying to preserve it They didn't have our world in mind. And we bring that with us, right? Those are those Latinx theologians, those Muharista theologians, those womanist theologians that you name. And some of those approaches take most seriously the world in front of the text, not at the expense of other forms of criticism, but just to say, I can't help but bring my black gay self to this text when I read it. And that's going to impact what I do and how I respond to that text. So let's take another quick break and come back to wrap this conversation and offer a brief invitation. We'll be right back in five seconds. We just need a little moment to decenter heteronormativity and whiteness. And just like that, we have recentered the context and we are ready to wrap this thing up. So as we prepare to take our seats, hear this invitation. The most important thing that we want you to hear is that context is queen. Do not use scripture as a bomb. Do not use scripture as a weapon. Take the time to understand the context within the text before you ever use it with anybody else. And if somebody says to you, no, you just got to rely on Jesus. You got to rely on the Holy Spirit. But what is the Spirit saying? What is the Spirit saying? The Spirit is saying that y'all are crazy is how you need to respond. The Spirit is saying that y'all need to go learn how to read the text because people have talked about the Spirit inspiring them to do things for a long time. And that's given us Hitler. It's given us Donald Trump. Donald Trump read two Corinthians. Two Thessalonians. I think somebody probably put in his speech. I'm not entirely sure he read it. He said he did. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to grab that woman by the pussy. So before you claim the Holy Spirit helps you to do anything, know that one day you might be on Access Hollywood saying that the Spirit told you to do something because you didn't learn how to faithfully read the text. We cannot force democracy on other people at gunpoint. Neither can we force Bible or our reading of the Bible on a group of people at gunpoint. And if you don't know what I'm saying, when you tell folks they're going to hell if they don't live a certain way, or don't think like you, that's gunpoint. You're threatening their life with scripture. And that shit ain't faithful. 
All right, good people. So I uh, let's nope, wrap this nope, up for nope. I'm starting this this week. See. I'm starting it this week. You get on my damn nerves. I'm sick of you. No, shut up, Brandon. <laughs> I'm ending this thing. Wait till I see your ass. And that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All Saints and Aints. We are grateful to you for once again hanging out with us here on the Holy Shit Pod. I guess we'll keep it this way. So, Katie, you do the next one then since his ass want to take over. All right. Well, you know what? As you've heard on the last two shows, one of the things we love most is connecting with you, our listeners. Send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com to connect with us, ask a question, submit a discussion topic, or just say hello. As you know, we believe word of mouth is the best way to spread the good news about the Church of Holy Shit. So take five seconds to share this episode with a friend who needs to laugh or that relative who needs to be challenged. I'm reclaiming my time. And if you are listening in Apple Podcast or any other podcast app that allows you to submit ratings, please leave an honest rating and a review. That's just another helpful way to let us know what you're thinking and how you're feeling. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to patreon.com slash theolabmedia and leave us a little love offering in the basket as it is passed. All right, good people. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Until then, peace. Peace. Peace up. Hey, town, damn. <laughs> <laughs>